Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series today, The Invisible War, with a message entitled Understanding Angels, Part 1. So turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Here's how I know that very few people understand angels. You know, a mother will say to her little daughter, oh, you little angel. Now, what do you suppose that means? I suspect it means she's little and she's cute. I mean, what an angel. And I guess she's been good as well. That's an angel. So I wonder whether a commander on the battlefield might ever say to his battle-hardened troops, oh, you guys are angels. No image comes to mind, right? Or consider the many angel paraphernalia that people like to buy. Everything is all sweetness and light. I mean, I never see a contemporary angel like, for instance, the one found in 1 Samuel 24, verse 16, who stretched out his hand to destroy the city of Jerusalem and only relented at the command of God. Or the one in 2 Kings 19:35, a single angel who struck down 185,000 fighting men in the camp of the Assyrians, the then world's superpower. From a biblical perspective, Psalm 91, verses 10 to 11, is very encouraging. It says, No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. What a comfort to know that God's powerful ones surround us and guard us. For the next two days, starting today, I want to talk about the nature of angels. And today, I simply want to talk about all the Bible tells us about their nature. What kind of beings are they? And then tomorrow, let's talk about what the Bible says they do. So what do we know about the nature of angels? Well, first, we might say that we know that angels are created beings. They're not eternal. They, like we, came into being. Only God is eternal. He alone is from everlasting to everlasting. There never was a time when God was not the only true God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is from everlasting to everlasting. And did you notice I used words the Bible uses to describe the eternality of God? No such words are ever spoken of angels. They are temporal beings. Now, that leads to a question. If the book of Genesis begins with the first creation of the cosmos and then the creation of the world and finally the creation of the human race, where do angels fit into that scheme of things? Are we to assume that they were created alongside of the rest of the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2? Well, we do know that Genesis 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in Genesis 2 verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. See, some people have taken that phrase and all the host of them to include the angelic realm in that sentence. But from reading the Genesis text, we have to assume that the host has to refer to the heavens or the cosmos. The host are the stars and the planets and so forth, not the angels. I will in just a little while speak about why we shouldn't think of the angels in the same breath as we think of the physical universe and everything in it, so stay with me on that. Well, then if Genesis 1 and 2 doesn't mention the creation of angels, are we then to really assume that angels are created? Well, yes, we are. Consider Colossians 1 verse 16. It says, for by him, that is by Jesus, all things were created 
in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so according to Colossians, the created order includes those things that are visible and those things that are not. So we might say it includes things that are material and things that are not made of matter. And Genesis 1 and 2 seems only to describe the material world in the universe, not the immaterial world. Nonetheless, I'm probably getting ahead of myself here. I mean, we're going to discuss the actual makeup of angels in a bit, and here I only wish to address the matter of their creation. They are not eternal. Angels, like humans, are contingent beings. They depend in their existence on God. But when were they made? Now, here again, I I have to get ahead of myself slightly and consider the different names that are given to the angels. Yeah, they're called authorities, as in Colossians, but they're sometimes called the holy ones. We'll consider why those different names later. We'll even notice that at times they are called gods, and sometimes they're called the sons of God. But that requires a great deal of explanation. I I only raise that matter now to show that their names and their functions are related. But bearing in mind that they are sometimes called by other names, I want to take you to a passage in the book of Job. I'll be reading from Job chapter 38. You know, the passage comes at the end of the book of Job, and Job has been complaining to God, and finally God breaks in and speaks. Where were you, he asks Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? And and the point is, Job, you seem to know so much about everything, you talk as if you know eternal things. And if that's so, when I called the earth into being, where were you? And of course, the question itself is meant to do what it eventually does. Job will lay his hand over his mouth, and he's going to admit that God is God, and he, Job, is just a created being. But in the process of questioning Job, God has more questions about the creation. So here I'm reading Job 38, verses 6 and 7, as God still asks Job about the foundations of the earth. On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That is, when God laid the foundations of the world, the sons of God, that is the angels, were shouting for joy. And so, that's the key. The Bible doesn't tell us about the creation of the angels in the way that it tells us about the creation of the human race. See, all we know is that the angels preceded the physical, material creation. Up until the moment that God spoke and physical matter appeared, no such thing had ever existed. Angels are of a different order. But angels watched as God created matter, something never done before. And as physical stuff came into being, it it resulted in an explosion of joy from the angelic band. They were overwhelmed at the splendor of God, who would both think of and bring into being such things. Okay, angels are finite beings, they're created, who are not a part of the physical order of things. And so, now's the time we need to examine what they are. That is, what are they made of? I say that because if you examine a human form, we're able to talk about our component parts. So, science has helped us understand our physicality. Indeed, science is that discipline that examines physical matter. That's why when I hear someone say, well, The Bible is not scientific when it speaks about angels. Well, I've always got a smile. Science is not a discipline about everything. It's a systematized, organized approach of examining matter that is physical matter. 
If something is not in the material world, science can't examine it. So when someone says the spiritual world isn't scientific, I I imagine going to a baseball game and someone saying, this game doesn't exist after all, It's, it's not hockey. So you explain hockey, well, that's a different thing. But the critic is undeterred. If it's not hockey, it's not a sport. And so if angels are not a part of the physical universe, what are they made of? Well, the answer is they are spirit. Listen to Hebrews 1 verse 14. That passage, speaking of the angel, says, are they not all ministering spirits? That is, they are servants of God who are made of spirit. You want to contrast that with Jesus' words to his disciples after his resurrection. And and here I'm reading Luke chapter 24, verse 39. He says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So clearly, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. But what then is spirit? That's a very difficult question to answer. We know that God is spirit, and and I guess the best I can do with that is to say that being spirit means that a spiritual being is not physical. Now, this is one of the reasons why the angels can be called gods, for they are made of spirit, but they are also unlike the one God in so many ways. So the best explanation I know to explain that comes from Job chapter 4, verse 15. It's part of a speech given by Eliphaz, one of Job's miserable comforters. But in part of his speech, he speaks of a vision that he has seen. Verse 15 and 16 says, A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. I think that's a pretty good description. Angels do have a form, but we, with our physical eyes, can't discern the appearance. Ah, you might say, all right, but why is it that in the Bible, angels do appear and they look human and sometimes they carry a sword and so forth? And again, so much more to discuss and so much more to learn about these amazing beings. Every year, Back to the Bible works hard to bring you resources that engage your thoughts in the Bible. This month, we've created a very special book that we think will become part of a Christmas tradition for many families. It's our Laugh Again 12 Days of Christmas Stories, 12 of Phil Calloway's favorite Christmas stories, 12 readings from the Bible of the actual Christmas story, all designed to prepare our hearts for the occasion of Jesus' arrival. Use for your personal devotions around the dinner table or at night with the kids, perhaps before they go to bed. 12 Days of Christmas Stories is a full-color, fun, and thoughtful book that will engage both young and old in the real meaning of Christmas. So request your free copy during the month of November in preparation for the Christmas season as our Christmas gift to you. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. It is true that angels are spirit and not made of matter, and that under normal circumstances, we simply can't see them. But if you listen to my introduction on this subject matter, you heard me speaking about the time when Elisha, who is completely aware of an army of angels, well, you remember that he prayed that God would open the eyes of his servant, and then suddenly 
the servant sees a great host of angels. It's a mighty army of them. And then he sees how they blind the entire Syrian army. And so it seems to me that God, according to his infinite wisdom, can at any moment so direct our eyesight so that we are in some fashion able to see these amazing beings. We find that same language in Numbers chapter 22, verse 31. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with a drawn sword in his hand. That is, the angel was always there. But Balaam was unable to see the peril that he was in until God opened his eyes. But at other times, it seems as if God gives angels the ability for a while to take on a bodily form. Now, I say it appears that way. There's no clear biblical teaching on this matter. So the best I can do here is to guess. But for instance, in Matthew 28, when Mary approaches the tomb where Jesus was laid, verses 2 and 3 says, An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now that does seem, although the angel is clearly different from everything else in the creation, yet still he has in some form entered into the realm of the physical world. Or you might remember Hebrews 13 verse 2, which says that some have entertained angels unawares, that is, on a very different level. For here it must be that the angel appears completely human and one would not know that they're angels. Now, am I right that in some fashion, angels, for lack of a better word, incarnate? Again, there's no biblical text we can consult on this matter, but it does seem to me that even while angels are spirit, they do seem to either by a miraculous work of God or by an innate ability, demonstrate the ability to enter into the physical world for a time. I think that's what we have when the three men come to Abraham while he's in his tent in the heat of the day. It's recorded in Genesis 18. One of those three is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, and the other two are angels. And it's a remarkable passage because you might remember Abraham and Sarah eat with these three. And then the three of them take a walk and they talk with Abraham. And so it seems to me that the angels may have been given this remarkable ability at the command of God, to enter into the physical order of things, probably at very unique times and at the command of God. Well, what else do we know about angels? We know that they're not sexual beings. Matthew 22, verse 30, Jesus affirms that they don't marry. And so we assume, therefore, that they don't produce offspring. It seems that their number is set. However, they probably have a huge number of them. We also note that they're mighty. Psalm 103, verse 20, in fact, calls them, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. And so, as we saw yesterday, angels are sent out from God and are called upon to obey God and they keep his commandments. They're given assignments in heaven and then they're called to complete them. And in order to do that, they have great power. And if you have the eyes to see it, you might be surprised at how often they appear in the pages of scripture. Genesis 19 verse 1 says, Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. And if you remember that account, you'll remember that the men of Sodom didn't know that they were angels, and they assumed that they were strangers that had come into their town. And because those were wicked men, they demanded that these men engage in sexual relations with them. And in response, the angels reach out and strike all those men with blindness. Such is their power. 
And in Genesis 22, you might remember that Abraham was about to slay his son Isaac on the altar. And suddenly an angel shows up and stops him. Or we might think of Exodus 14 verse 19 as two million Israelites are exiting Egypt. And the scripture says, Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them. Or you might think of the time when David numbered the Israelites contrary to the word of God, and the angel stood ready to strike the city of Jerusalem. Or you might remember the promise that's found in in Psalm 34, verse 7. It says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now, I'm probably getting ahead of myself again, and I'm moving toward the topic of what angels do. And as I've said, we're going to discuss that in our next study on this matter. But but we still have a few more things to consider about who they are. Notice, would you, that while angels have great power, angels are not omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent. And that means that angels can only be in one place at one time. They are sent out by God. I mean, later when we discuss demons who are fallen angels, we will notice that Satan roams to and fro on the earth. See, the good news is that Satan, like all the other angels, can only be in one place at one time. By far the majority of you are probably all of you who are listening now to my voice. You've never actually encountered Satan. You see, he spends the majority of his time with the leaders of the world and in directing the dark troops under his command but he is spatially located just like all the other angels. God sends his angels on assignment and they must go to the place he sends them. See, this leads then quite easily to the next question. Do people actually have guardian angels the way that is commonly believed today? Well, in making that case, some actually cite Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. And in that passage, Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And that would seem to indicate that the little ones, in this case, referring to a lost sheep who is helplessly going astray, is being watched over by an angel. But that tells us no more than that that God assigns an angel to watch over an especially vulnerable and helpless child of God. It does not necessarily tell us that there is one angel who performs that function for every single human being for a lifetime. We don't know if there are guardian angels or not. In short, we do well not to speculate, but we also do well not to become overly fascinated with angels. Consider how important are the words of Revelation 19, verse 10. That passage says, Then I, that is John, the author of Revelation, fell down at his feet to worship him, that is, at the feet of an angel. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You see, our fascination must remain fixed on God. You need to hear the very clear warning of Colossians 2, verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. See, God alone deserves our worship, and God alone is the subject of our fascination. Anyone who becomes angel-oriented in their fascination soon runs their faith into the ditch. That's because a fascination with angels fails 
to account for 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14. And no wonder, writes Paul, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Indeed, in Galatians 1 verse 8, Paul warns, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Listen, there's but one place to learn the truths about God, not from angels and certainly not from visions. The place to learn about these things is from Scripture. It was years ago when a Canadian evangelist by the name of William Branham began to receive visitations of an angel during his evangelistic campaigns. And in no time, the angel was instructing him as to what to say. And shortly after that, Branham began to deny the Trinity, and he became a false teacher. Did you know that there are entire religions in this world that are based on angel visitation? Our faith is based on God's revelation in Jesus as is communicated to us through the apostles whom Jesus appointed. We categorically and emphatically deny that angels have any role at all in teaching us anything about God. As Paul taught us, if an angel preaches a gospel contrary to that which is given in Jesus, let that angel be cursed. And so we acknowledge both the existence of angels and that they are called upon to do God's bidding. We rejoice that at times God sends his angels to protect us in times of trouble and even to rescue us. But angels are in this sense like us. They are not the infallible interpreters of the gospel. They're not objects of worship. They are fellow servants with us. John, I'm curious and wonder what you think about this. It just seems like angels are sort of a predominant theme today. Lots of people think inside and outside of the church. Why are angels so popular? I'm not sure I know the answer to it. Um, you know, I never made mention of the uh, television program called Touched by an Angel. And I must honestly say that I haven't watched it, so I, I really have nothing to say. Uh, outside of the fact that I think, you know, people are overwhelmed with the thought of God. They're held accountable to God. And angels, uh, you know, it, it, you know, somehow we have been able to disconnect the, you know, the idea of an angel with the idea of God or that angels are responding to the commands of God. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, it seems tamer to me. At least that's how I see it. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Invisible War, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. On November 14th, Dr. Neufeld will begin a new series that you won't want to miss, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion. It's a 20-message series on Matthew 21 to 25. There's a lot to unpack in these five chapters, and Dr. John's biblical expertise will shed light on these passages to help you understand them in a new and deeper way. This series begins with an overview of the qualities that are unique about the Gospel of Matthew and continues with a deep dive into the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life where he will fulfill the mission he'd been sent by the Father to accomplish. So mark your calendars for November 14th and check out this series on your local radio station, your preferred podcast platform, or at backtothebible.ca. And for more information, just call us at one 800 663 2425.